All right. Okay, Daniel chapter whatever we're on. Three, four, four. Daniel chapter four. <clears throat> so we talked night one about this introduction to these characters, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. We've got the God of the universe. The theme idea of the whole book of Daniel is that God is sovereign over all things. He can bring high the lowly. He can bring low the proud. And we're gonna see that played out in spades here as we talk about our own condition. And a lot of the times when we approach scripture, we do so in a way that we're not given permission to. Here's what I mean. Um, if you are, let, let's use the story of David and Goliath because we talked about it the other night. If you read the story of David and Goliath, we tend to liken ourselves as pretty good people, uh, pretty brave people, and pretty conscientious of people that are around us. We read the story of David and Goliath, and then sometimes uh, it, there's a mistake we make when we teach this in Sunday school. We talk about David and Goliath and the bravery that it took for David to kill Goliath and the great odds that David faced against Goliath and and then David slays Goliath. And then what, what do we teach everyone? You should be more like David. Have the kind of faith that David has. Have the kind of bravery that David has. And so when we read the stories in scripture, we tend to make a huge, what we call hermeneutical error. Hermeneutical means the way we translate scripture. And we tend to translate scripture through what Martin Luther called curvatus in se, which means we're called navel gazers. We tend to read scripture through our own personal lens, right? Y'all ever been to a Bible study before where you open up the text and someone goes, what do you think this verse means, right? <laughs> How does this verse apply to your life? I promise you, the biblical writers never wrote anything in scripture so that you would open up the text and say, what do I think this means? Because Jeremiah 17 verse nine reminds us that my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah tells me that my heart is an awful guide. It's anti-Napoleon dynamite, right? Just follow your heart, that's what I do. Don't do that, right? The Bible says, don't follow your heart. Your heart is corrupt. It thinks bad things. And if any of you in here have been in a high school relationship before, you know that it's true, right? Your heart's corrupt. It thinks dumb things. And then you break up and all your friends are like, I've been telling you. And you're like, I'll never do it again. But then what do you do the next week? Here comes Jason with his big biceps. And you're like, I'm, I love him. No, mom, I love him. I really love him this time. I know I said that about Alex, but Alex was different. Jason's my love. Like if you honestly, if you put your heart on trial for the junk it's gotten you in in your life, like if your heart came for a job resume of playing the role of captain of your life, I think we would all sit that heart down and say, so tell me your track record, right? And your heart would be like, I'm a disaster. And you'd be like, you got the job, you got the job, you got the job, right? That's what we do. We've relied on our heart to make decisions. It's driven us into the gutter of life and we keep allowing it to be captain and we don't really know why. The Bible says this is to your great folly. It is not the way we're supposed to govern our lives. And so we read the text of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And we tend to try to almost like, like an Enneagram test or like a personality test or like which Harry Potter house are you in test. We read stories like this and we're like, which one are you most like? And we're like, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of like an Abednego. Right? And then you're like, are you a Shadrach? Because I think we're perfect together. I'm an Abednego, you're a Shadrach. This is perfect, right? 
or um, you go through something in your life and you're like, man, I just, I'm really facing my own giant today. I, uh, I'm really going through a, a David and Goliath situation right here, right? And we're like, okay, come on, you got this, right? The, the, the problem with that is that when you approach the text, Jesus is the hero of every biblical story. The hero of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if I gave you those four names, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I said, who's the story of, da- who's the hero of the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, your answer should always be, Jesus is, the, Jesus is the hero of the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who's the hero of David and Goliath? Jesus is the hero of David and Goliath. Why? Because all David is, is a shadow. Because David is a nothing. He's just a projection on a wall of the king that's to come. You see, but where David could only protect from one Goliath, God protects from the Goliath of sin. Where David mustered up the courage but was chasing money and women, Jesus does so out of his love for us as people. David is a lesser Jesus. He's just a poor, a poor man's copy of who Jesus is going to be. Jesus is the hero of the David and Goliath story. Jesus is the hero, right? The Good Samaritan story. How many of y'all heard the Good Samaritan story? And then your preschool or Sunday school teacher said, you should be more like the Good Samaritan. That's not your role in the story. You are the beaten, half-naked, broken, dying man on the side of the road. That's who you are. And you just hope that someone comes by and picks you up and pays a great price for your salvation. Jesus is the good Samaritan. You're the guy on the side of the road dead in your sin. And you need help. You need someone to pay a great price to rescue you. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the hero of the biblical account of the whole Old Testament, of the New Testament. And yes, friend, Jesus is the hero of your story too. So, When we read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we ask the question, well then, who do I get to be? I want want a golden goose lay, golden eggs for Easter. Who do I get to be in the story? Y'all ever seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? Faruka Salt. I want a golden goose now. No one? So there was this movie in like the 1980s. Anyway, okay. So... We want to open up the text and let's try to read it like modern Americans through the lens of how does this apply to me? Where do I fit in the story? And we're going to have a good answer to that. Ready? Here's what happens. So Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He sets up the golden statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to kneel and bow. They get thrown in the fiery furnace. They are rescued from the fiery furnace by the fourth character inside of the fiery furnace who is Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. Good. Jesus rescues them from the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, for about 13 seconds, goes, wow, your God's impressive. And you know what kind of a king would admit that a God was impressive? A very humble king would do that. You know, it takes a big man to admit that God is better than him. And I am that big man. And someone might say, it takes a bigger man than an impressive God to admit that an impressive God is bigger than that bigger man. And friends, I am that bigger man. So he, he, as Justin Bieber, the great theologian would say, he loves himself, okay? You can go and love yourself. All right, here we go. Uh, Here we go, verse chapter four. Um, He has a, then he has another dream. And he goes back to Daniel because Daniel's already interpreted a dream. But the dream that 
that Nebuchadnezzar tells him is that there's going to be a tree that gets cut down, and uh, he started to see uh, this kind of this crazy scenario play out. So Daniel says, oh, no, do I have to tell him? God reveals to Daniel what this dream means, and it's not good news. So Daniel's like, uh-oh. But Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me anyway. So Daniel says, here's what's going to happen. Uh, this is the decree of the Most High. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You're going to eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. You're going to lose your kingdom and you're going to go crazy. You're going to eat grass like a wild ox and live among the beasts of the field. Which is a, that's a, a, a huge prophecy when a guy is the king of kings of the kingdoms of Babylon, right? He rules all. When he says, set up a statue, everyone bow to it, they do it. And Daniel, this peasant prophet little guy, comes up and says, yeah, you're going to be like a, uh, kind of like an ox, okie doke. And that's exactly what happens. Here, here's what it says in verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his palace, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven and said, uh-oh, uh, this is what is decreed for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will now be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass before you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird, right? So he takes on kind of this creepy, like witch-like figure. He stops taking care of himself. He starts eating really weird food. And he literally goes from the king of the kingdom of Babylon down to what people would only pass by and mock. And he lived now in humiliation. He chose pride and he experienced humiliation. He refused to kneel and now he finds himself kneeling and eating the grass of the earth. This is exactly then the question that we have been posing. In the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you properly interpret the text, I'm gonna give you one guess as to who the scripture invites you to partner with as your equal. Who's the spirit animal of the text for you? Nebuchadnezzar is your spirit animal, okay? It's not Daniel, no, 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 no. It's not Shadrach, it's not Meshach, it's not Abednego, it's not the fourth guy in the fiery furnace. The spirit animal of the text for us is to look at Nebuchadnezzar and instead of going, what a freak, what a weirdo. He worshiped things that weren't Yahweh and it led to his psychosis and destruction. I don't know anyone who worships something other than God and does it again and again, expecting it to fulfill them, and then ends up in that insanity cycle of chasing material possessions to fill an immaterial soul, and then never gets there and ends up dying in the middle of that crazy cycle. I can't imagine ever doing that, and if you can't, let me tell you, I do this all the time. <laughs> You see, it's really easy for us to go, oh, no, I'm not guilty of idolatry. I've, I've never built a golden statue. I've never set up a big pillar that looks like me. I'm not an idolater. 
I d- that's what the word means. It means to worship something that isn't Yahweh is to commit the sin of idolatry. And while it's easy to go, well, as long as I don't build a statue and bow down to it, I'm not guilty of idolatry. The problem is, this is the exact verbiage that's used for each and every one of us as people when we do anything against the king of the universe. God has laid out his royal decree to us. Don't you love how King Nebuchadnezzar emulates but pitifully falls short of God? See, God is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so Nebuchadnezzar, almost like a four-year-old pushing like a little bubble-blowing lawnmower behind his dad who's actually cutting the grass, this is what all the kings of the earth are like compared to the God of the universe. You can call yourself king if you want to, but you're like the little naked two-year-old going like, I'm cutting grass. Look what I'm doing. I'm helpful. I'm the ruler of this plastic piece of crap. And, (laughs) right? And the God of the universe is like, yeah, you're the king for sure. Yeah, you're doing a great job. When Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, there's actually a fragment of this that we found within about 15 years of Jesus's lifetime. It's called P72. You don't care. Anyway, it's an original, it's, it's an original copy of the extant New Testament that the book of John is written in. I'm an apologist. I'm gonna nerd out here for a second. And the one piece of the fragment that we have found from, from the earliest copy of John that we have is from John chapter 18, and it's this line in Greek. The fragment we have says, Jesus looked at Pilate, and Pilate responded, what is truth? Pilate is this, he's this Roman prefect. He's a governor. He rules over all of the Jews in the area, and he is responsible for the life and death of Jesus And he says, I have the power to let you free or to crucify you. What do you have to say for yourself? Do you know what Jesus responds? Like the God of the universe pushing a real lawnmower, he turns around and goes, you're only the governor of what I say you're governor of. And the moment that I say you're not governor anymore, I take back the authority that I have, both on earth and in, in heaven. It all belongs to me. So do not get it twisted. Any power you have comes from me and I will take it back up whenever I feel like it. Here we go, <laughs> right? And Pontius Pilate's like, no. He's so scared of that response that he's like, I think we should let Jesus go. He's freaked out. And Pontius Pilate's wife, <laughs> behind every good man, is a good woman who's saying, you shouldn't have said that. And so she goes, let that dude go. He freaks me out. I think he's telling the truth. I wouldn't kill him if I were you. So Pontius Pilate washes his hands and says, let this dude go. But they decide to kill him anyway. Now, in the middle of all that, we look at Nebuchadnezzar and we think to ourselves, well, that's not me. I don't set up idols. I don't think of myself as king. The Bible says that when God sends out his royal decree, just like Nebuchadnezzar, who looks up at the God of the universe and the king of kings, the king of the universe, God, declares law. The king of the universe calls for worship. The king of the universe makes himself known. And so Nebuchadnezzar, like a naked two-year-old, goes, hey, I want to do that. I've got other laws. But Nebuchadnezzar's laws benefit him. They want to make him famous. They're for his own benefit. It's like everyone kneel down to a stupid statue. So he emulates God in being quote-unquote king, but different than God's laws, which are meant for our prosperity and for our benefit, and they're poured out of a love of his character for us. Nebuchadnezzar's all about himself. What benefits me? What profits, what profits me? What is beneficial to me? Likewise, God calls for worship. 
He calls for worship because he's the God of the universe and worship is owed to him. In fact, the Bible says when we don't worship him, we are all then in his debt because he's, he's deserving of worship for every second that we're alive. And when Jesus is in his processional in the New Testament, he says, if you stop, the rocks will cry out and worship because I am always worthy of it. Nebuchadnezzar goes, I think you guys should worship me too. But see, here's the thing. The more we look at Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the lies that Babylon tells us is I'm so different than Nebuchadnezzar. He was so different than me. But if you stop platforming idolatry in terms of setting up big golden statues, but instead, have you ever sought value from someone who wasn't God? Have you ever sought identity in something that wasn't God? Have you ever looked at someone around you or a relationship or thought to yourself, man, if only she would like me, if only he would like me, then I would truly be valuable. If only enough people at school would think that I'm great, then I will finally be great. And what you've done is you've said, God, I, I recognize your opinion of me, and that's great, but you want to know what I really want? I really want these other messed up Nebuchadnezzars to think that I'm cool too. I know that the real God of the universe looks at me as a son and daughter and delights in me, and it, it says it dances over me with joy and song, and that I'm valuable in his sight. Uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by works so that no man can boast, because you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The psalmist says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by the God of the universe who knows us and sees us and recognizes us. The book of Hebrews chapter four says, on that day when you meet God face to face, you will not approach a man who does not understand what you're going through. The book of Isaiah chapter 53 says that Jesus was an ugly man. He walked through life and he was made fun of by everyone around him. He was of no stature that you would behold him. Nothing in his face that would draw you to his appearance. And yet he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was ridiculously pained throughout his life. He was a man familiar with pain as, as though people would hide their face from him. And it, but it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was not the really powerful people in our culture that are a big statue and lots of money. Why did Jesus stoop so low? Why did he spend 30 years in the desert of Israel working in a quarry, callousing his hands and, and, and then presenting himself and getting laughed at and mocked and humiliated? And we won't even show what the actual truth is of the crucifixion. He was a Jewish man and in all of his dignity, the God of the universe was stripped bare naked so that all would laugh at him and humiliate him with a crown of thorns on his head. Why do you think Jesus would stoop that low? It wasn't necessary for salvation. A really popular guy could have lived a perfect life and died in your place. Why do you think Jesus stooped so low? Because I'll bet you felt that low before, haven't you? And without feeling that low, Jesus could not say in the book of Hebrews, on that day when you meet me face to face, he says, you can approach the throne of grace with this confidence that the one who sees you, the intercessor for your sins, you do not have a great high priest in Jesus who is incapable of sympathizing with your pain, but instead a God in human form who sees you, who is tempted in every single way, and yet he did not sin. Which means when you go to Jesus in prayer and you go, God, I'm feeling left out, I'm feeling ridiculed, I'm feeling humiliated, we do not have a God like every other belief system be it Mormonism, be it Islam, be it any other foreign belief system, Shintoism, Taoism, Buddhism, no matter what it is, every other God would look at our human pain and go, <laughs> what's pain? What's suffering? What's humiliation? 
What's bullying? What's depression? What's anxiety? But Jesus doesn't. Jesus is able to look at all of us when we come to him in prayer and go, I know. I know. I know. I recognize. I was there. I felt it. I am with you in your pain. We do not have a high priest who's incapable of sympathizing with our pain, but instead made himself the very nature that we were, Philippians 2 says. He didn't cling to his godlike nature, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the God that we worship. And out of his love for us, this is what you must understand. God's love for us that he has poured out to us is for our own benefit. And the God of the universe has the right to say, this is how I've made you. This is what you're going to do. This is what it means to be a, an image bearer of me. If I asked you why you're here, the answer comes from Isaiah 43. The Bible tells us, if you've ever wondered, why am I here? Why was I created? Why am I breathing right now? What's my life all about? You don't need to go seek Oprah or Dr. Phil or any wise sage in your life or ChatGPT. I'll tell you. <laughs> By the way, ChatGPT wrote this sermon for me. And right now, I'm literally just saying exactly what it's telling me to say, including this phrase I just said that it's telling me what to say. I'm now caught in a ChatGPT loop. Okay, anyway, you don't need to seek that. Because the one who created you and breathed his breath into you and gave you life has already told you why you're here. You ready for it? You are here to bring God glory. In other words, you have one responsibility, right? It's like this table. Is this a good table? How do you know it's a good table? Because it holds things. We know something is a good table because this is what we expect of tables. Tables hold things. What is, this is a guitar. Sorry if I'm not supposed to touch this. Tommy, don't get mad at me. Is this a good guitar? What's it supposed to do? Uh... I remember when we broke up the first time you saying this is it, I've had enough, cause I... Okay, we gotta keep going. What? Okay. Is it... So, that was the dumbest thing that's ever happened in the middle of a sermon. But... It's a good guitar, right? We know that because it does what guitars are supposed to play music, right? So if we ask ourselves a question, am I a good person? We don't know anything's value until we know its purpose, right? If you came in and you'd never seen a table before and you picked it up and you tried to throw it across the room thinking it was some kind of a Frisbee, you would go, this is a bad table. And I would go, no, 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 no. That's not what tables are for. It's, it's, not that it, it's, it's not that you trying to use it as a Frisbee has changed its value or it's, it's changed its intention or it's changed its goodness. It's that you don't get what the table's for. In the same way, most of us in this room have up to this point been trying to use our life for something it wasn't intended for. 
And the reason that we feel so empty inside isn't because we're not doing a good job at whatever we think our life was intended for. It's because we're trying to throw a table across the room that was meant for something very different. It's because your life was meant to bring glory to God and you're trying to bring glory to yourself. That's why you feel so empty all the time. Your life was meant to bring glory to God and you think it's to be successful or to be popular, or to be beautiful or to have guys want you and that's why you feel so empty. And let me tell you the secret at the end of your rat race. Every person on earth could think you're the best thing ever and it would not even begin to satisfy the immaterial soul that you have. It wouldn't even start. And so I, I've made you a commitment, which is that I'm gonna talk to you like adults through this whole process. And tonight's gonna, I don't know, it's gonna be difficult, but I want to give you an, an honest understanding of the idea of sin as scripture talks about it and the, the court case that you have, Right? I, one day you are going to be presented in front of the God of the universe. And in that moment, the question is simply going to be, did you do what you were made to do? You're made to bring glory to God, which means in every single second that you breathe from the moment that you were conceived up until right now, did you in every thought, word, action, and attitude do everything perfectly that God called you to do? And did you refrain from anything evil that God called you not to do? The answer for all of you is ubiquitously the same. No, you have not held that up. The Bible says, into iniquity I was conceived. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, from as a child I was an enemy of God. Romans chapter 5 says that we all without Jesus are not friendly towards him, but we are enemies of God. We have looked at him as a whole bunch of little Nebuchadnezzars, as a little two-year-old pushing a, a, a little lawnmower, and God turns around and goes, follow me. And we went, forget that. I'm going this way. And we've walked to our own destruction. But in the process of walking to our own destruction, we have hurt ourselves. We have hurt our genome. We have hurt nature. That's why everything in our world is so stinking broken, because we walked a direction that the God who invented human life said, I wouldn't go there if I were you. And we went, what do you know? Oh, it turns out you know everything. Yikes, my life's a disaster. I can't feel satisfied. I've got an insatiable, eternal appetite for love and for greed and for sex and for things in my, and I can't get enough of this in my life. And no matter how much I have, and no matter how much money I have, it never works. Billionaires want more money. Famous people want more fame. No one is ever satisfied. So if you just think to yourself, well, one day when I get that guy or that girl or that job or that promotion or that, let me save you the, the, an entire life of chasing something. It won't work. It doesn't work. Anything you're chasing that isn't Jesus, it won't only not satisfy you, it will turn around and humiliate you. And it laughs at you and it will mock you, and it will leave you embarrassed and humiliated out in front of everyone because you have given your whole life to chasing something that evaded you. You will climb the mountain of power, success, sex, ethics, whatever it might be in your heart, only to find that you're on the wrong mountain altogether. And you'll look across the valley at another mountain that's really interesting Across the valley, there's the mountain of Christianity in God's kingdom. And the mountain looks different than the mountain that you're on. Because it is, on that mountain, it is not the responsibility of the man to climb to the top, but that God has come down the mountain to his people. The mountain's a different kind of mountain. 
But I wanna, I wanna, I wanna finish this conversation with three things for the kingdom and three things for Babylon. I wanna give you the three most common lies of Babylon about sin, and then I wanna give you three profound truths about sin when it comes to the kingdom of God. I'm not gonna sugarcoat things. You're gonna get offended. I'm gonna talk about hell. I'm gonna talk about damnation. I'm gonna talk about what the Bible says. But I promise you, you will not come up to me afterwards and say, well, I don't think, it doesn't matter what you think. Did you at one point expand a universe billions of light years across? Did you invent light from nothing? Did you come back from the dead on Easter after proclaiming that you were going to? No. So I don't care what you think if what you think is going against scripture. I really, really, really care what God thinks. And I think that you should too. So I want to give you an accurate understanding of what the Bible says about sin, death, and hell. And I want you as adults to respond accordingly. And you might say, I choose not to believe that. That's your prerogative. You're adults. But I don't want you to walk out of here going, it was never made clear to me. So it's going to be clear. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck for some of us. Some of us, this will be the night that we recognize I want nothing to do with Jesus. For others, this might be the night that we go, I didn't know that. I didn't know that I had a bad case. I didn't know that that was my destiny. So I just want you to, I want you to have eyes wide open. That's what I would want. I would want someone to stand up here and be honest with me. And let me deal with the weight of the truth. And that's what I'm going to do with you. Let me start by giving you the three Babylonian lies. The first Babylonian lie, it's like mercury. You've lived in it so much that when I say this, <laughs> some of you are going to say it out loud because you need attention, but we might all feel it in our hearts, okay? The first Babylonian lie is the idea that you're a good person. Now, the question comes in to say, when you, this is what the majority of Christians, this is horrifying. The majority of Christians in America, when asked, why are you going to get to heaven, will respond by saying, and I'm not trying to make fun of you because the most of you in here will answer this, at least hopefully before tonight. Hopefully after tonight, you'll never answer this again unless you're sleeping, in which case don't snort, that's annoying. But most of you, if someone asked you, walked up to you and said, okay, are you going to heaven when you die? the majority of us would say, yes. Or we don't want to be too proud, so we'd go, I think so. First of all, the Bible allows you to say 100% I am because Romans 8, 38, and 39 says this. I am convinced, Paul writes, as a child of God that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor, nor anything else nor height nor death nor anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, absolutely I'm saved. And that's not a proud statement to say. I am banking on the word of the God of the universe. That's a clear and good bet to make. But if asked, much of it, many of us would go, I don't know. Am I going to heaven? <laughs> Stacy? what do you think? I don't know. Um, yes. And then I would go, why? And you would go, I mean, I'd like try to be a good person. Uh, wrong. No, nope, not going to work. You got to hear the earth of the buzzer whenever you say that in your head, every time. Because that is, this is what Satan wants to feed our whole culture. He doesn't need you to believe in like the occult or in like some pagan, like goat-headed God that's like, meh. He doesn't need that. In order for you to be condemned and to not follow Jesus, he just needs you to follow the wrong version of Jesus. That's all I need you to do. He doesn't need you to follow some goat god or some Nebuchadnezzar statue. He just needs you to be so pot convinced that your salvation is based on your good works that you never question it. That's the game plan for modern Babylon. Just think you're good enough to get there. 
and then you won't worry about it. And when someone asks you, why do you think you're, you're a good person? The majority of us answer the same way. Well, I mean, I try to be a good person. And then I say, well, like, well, then who's a bad person? And what does everyone always say? Hitler, right? Like, like you're going to get to heaven, right? And God's going to go, are you, were you a perfect person? That's the standard of heaven, by the way. The standard to get in the gates of heaven is perfection. And God's going to go, were you perfect in thought, word, action, attitude from the moment that you were conceived until now? You're going to say, no. But there's a guy named Hitler. I want you to think about this. He was a lot worse than, that's not the standard. When you get to heaven, you will stand next to Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, and that will be your measuring stick. Are you better than him? And if the answer is no, then you're condemned. You will spend forever and eternity separated from God in hell. That's it. Now we might all think into ourselves, well, that, <laughs> so you gotta be Jesus level perfect to get into heaven? You must be mistaken. I'm not. The Bible makes it clear. Be perfect, the, the Father says, as I am perfect. There, no one righteous, there is no one righteous in the world, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin is death. No, you must be perfect. 613 laws in the Old Testament. No, you, it's not just that you can't commit adultery. You can't think about a woman lustfully. It's not that just that you can't murder. It's that you can't think hateful thoughts. It's not just that you have to not lie. It's that you must be perfectly honest in everything. And it's not just that you don't do bad things. It's you must perfectly follow the will of God and everything he's called you to do that you've just ignored. You're guilty. You must be perfect in all of it or you will spend forever in hell. That's what the Bible says. Hopefully at this point, none of us are thinking we're getting in by our own accord or own merit. Good, that's what the Bible wants you to think. The Bible needs you to have a moment of desperation where you go, whoa, 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 so I'm not good enough. Yeah, if you didn't catch that, let me say it one more time. You're not good enough to get into heaven. You're not gonna get to look at the person next to you or the row of people sitting next to you at Hume and go, are, do you just take one from each row or three from each row? Because I'm at least top three in this row. No, it's you and Jesus. And if you are not the same perfection as Jesus, you will be condemned to hell forever, period. You are not a good person. Doesn't matter what your parents say. Doesn't matter what your mom says. Doesn't matter what your dad says. Do you want to know why? They're also not good people, okay? Like, that's my mom. Biblically speaking, without Jesus, no one is good. No one. Because the only good, this is what Jesus says in the New Testament. Do you not know that only God is good? So if you go, I'm a good person, be careful. That's called blasphemy. You're calling yourself equal with Jesus. Now, if when you say good, you mean better than bad people, that's not the standard of heaven. The standard of heaven is perfection. The second lie of Babylon is this. All paths lead to God. We have this underlying assumption in Babylon that as long as I'm earnestly seeking some type of higher power, that I'm going to make it. And as Oprah says, and if you call that Allah and we call it Jesus and someone else calls it good vibes, we're all going to get there. That's awesome, Oprah. That is horribly inaccurate. But... I'll bet it made you feel good when you said it because the truth is this. John 14, 6 does away with any other belief system. Jesus, standing in the midst of all of his oppressors and all of his disciples, says this phrase. I am the way. That's the definite article. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. You can't do it through an earnest investigation of Buddhism. You can't do it through an earnest investigation of the Bhagavad Gita. You can't do it through an earnest investigation of Upanishads or Nirvana or Dharmic belief systems or karma. None of it will work. You can't just have and think happy thoughts. You can't go to Christmas and Easter and think that's sufficient. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. And if you think that I'll path lead to God, consider this illustration. If this building right now caught on fire and someone said, all of the doors are locked and we had a panic, but the architect of the building came in and said, don't worry, I built a safe room that someone can go in and push a button and it will extinguish all the flames. The problem is it's only built for a child. So no one who's above the age of five can go in there. And now imagine that the only person in this room below the age of five was one of my kids. And the problem with the, the room that you're in is as that room, as they walk in that room and the door shuts, they actually die and everyone else in the room can live. So in order to help everyone else, I would have to sacrifice my only son to go in and push that button, but then that door closes and he experiences the fire that was meant for all of us. So now I want you to imagine that conversation of me having that with my son, Leo, and explaining to him how this is gonna be the last conversation that we ever have. And him walking in that room and you seeing the depth of love that I look at Leo and I say, see all these people in this room? We love them, don't we? And a lot of them don't know Jesus and we want them to know Jesus. And so we want to save them because Leo, guess what? You do know Jesus and you'll be forever with him. You're gonna, it, it's gonna be amazing for you, but I'm gonna need you to be brave right now, big guy. He goes in there, he pushes it, it stops. Everything's extinguished. He perishes. And then one of you goes and pushes on the door and you go, the door over it's labeled Mormonism. And the door over here is labeled Buddhism. The door over here is um, labeled Zen. And the door over here is labeled morality. And the door over here is labeled ag ag agnosticism. And each of those doors, as you go and push them, they all actually open. They're another means of salvation. You could have just walked out one of those doors too. You didn't need the whole sacrifice of the sun montage. You could have just walked out one of these other stinking doors. And you walk up to me and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but we just found out that all of these paths actually lead to salvation for all these people. You didn't need to sacrifice your son. And then imagine I went, oh, I know. But I thought it'd be neat to have another belief system where the God of the universe has to kill his own child in order for people to be saved. Agnosticism would have done it and an earnest evaluation of your own morality would have done it. But I really love the idea of murdering my own kid just so people could be saved. Am I still a loving father? No, I'm a sick, psychotic sadist. So the whole idea goes out the window when you recognize that the God of the universe who's infinitely loving and wise did not come up with a new system to save everyone if agnosticism would do, if Buddhism would fix it, where you don't have to change the way that you're living, you don't have to sacrifice your life, you don't have to surrender your being. There was only one way, and Jesus did it. Thirdly, the third lie of Babylon is this. The first one, you're a good person. The second one, all paths lead to God. The third one, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. Okay, I, I want you to recognize this. Some of you think, well, I don't think it'd very, be very fun to be in the presence of God. I think he's kind of lame. He's kind of boring. I kind of like my life right now. So I don't think hell would be that bad because I don't want to be in God's presence anyway. I got a news flash for you. You're in his presence right now. 
I got a news flash for you. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift that we experience as humans is actually a gift from Father, from the Father up above. Why? Because his loving kindness leads us to repentance. You are basking in the privilege, blessings, honor, and gifts of God the Father right now. Even in your sanity of mind to say, I don't want to be with God, is a gift that God gave you. So that means, if you can imagine, what is every good and perfect worldly pleasure for us as human beings? It all comes from God. God is the inventor of sex. He's the inventor of, inventor of sanity. He's the inventor of family. He's the inventor of laughter. He's the inventor of joy. He's the inventor of comfort. He's the inventor of worship. He's the inventor of music. He invented everything that we enjoy as people. And when you say, I want nothing to do with God, you will immediately lose out on all the benefits of God that you are stealing from him right now that he is actually sending to you because he wants you to turn to him. God, as a loving father, is coming, and every day when you experience joy, he wants you one day to sit in joy and go, where is all of this goodness coming from? And then to point up at him and go, there must be a God up there. It says that his loving kindness leads us to repentance, which means if you ask the question, what is hell? And I told you, hell is a place where God is not. It's not just that the being, right, the Morgan Freeman guy is not going to be there, and he's a real riot. It means that everything that we enjoy about being in God's presence is wiped away which means there will be no comfort, no peace, no joy, no family, no laughter, no relationship, no sanity, no comfort, none of it. It will all be gone. So because when you call God to get away from you and he truly removes his presence, that is the very definition of torture, torment, and hell. Of course we don't know what that feels like because you've only ever experienced spaces where God inhabits fully. God is present right now. And if he were to withhold his presence from this place for one moment, we would experience the depth of true hell. Insanity, brokenness, discomfort. We, all, we, we think that God set up some kind of a torture chamber just to like burn people. That's not the case. Hell is where God gives people who want nothing to do with God exactly what they've asked for, but they have no clue what they're asking. The truth is, God in his character must send people to hell. Why? Because God is perfect in all of his attributes, including his justice. If God is perfect in his justice, then there must be reparations and there must be payment for the sins of treason that we've committed against God. The sin of treason against the king is always what? Death. Treason against the king is always punishable by death. And treason on a cosmic scale against God is infinitely worse. And anytime we don't do what he tells us to, and anytime we do what he tells us not to do, we're saying, I'm king, you're not. That is called treason. And treason is punishable by death. And eternal death. And eternal separation. Maybe you might think a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. But what if you thought about it like this? A loving God will give you exactly what you ask for. And if you want more of him, there is heaven for you. And if you want nothing to do with him, then he will give you exactly what you want. Maybe all God is at the end of the day is ultimately generous to every soul. If you say, I want nothing to do with you, he says, I've made a place that looks like that too. The Bible seems to indicate that hell wasn't made for us as people. It's that we started following the demons there going, I'd rather go here. 
Don't get it twisted. God's not up there. It, it says this in, in, the, in the book of James, that God's desire is that his mercy would triumph over his judgment, but he cannot let go of his character of justice just because it's not beneficial to us. He must maintain his character of justice, which means sin must be punished and treason must be dealt with in its proper punishment, which is death. The truths of the kingdom are this. I'm gonna give them to you quickly. You can talk about them in your cabin time. The great theologian, Rain Wilson, who plays the role of Dwight Schrute in The Office, once said, you are not a human having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. The reason that we love people, the reason that we desire justice, the reason that we crave mercy, the reason that we are so moved by music is not because we are bodies that have a soul. It's because we are souls. What makes you you is an eternal, never-ending soul. And what you possess for as long as God gives you on this planet is this weird, strange, fleshy avatar we call a body. My flesh and bones are not who I am. As my wife lay lifeless on the floor, no one went, there's Paige. No, she was gone. She was in her glory. She was with Jesus. We even call that their remains. We don't say that's them. That's just where they used to be because what makes us us is not our physical body. It's something bigger than that. You are not a body. You are a soul. You have a body. And you only have a body for a period of time. And when that body stops, why would any of us think that this body who craves, this, this soul that we have that craves justice and mercy and love and connection and family and all these, what makes us think that that immaterial thing dies when our avatar dies? Doesn't make sense. God's kingdom says it doesn't work like that. Your soul carries on and will face judgment. The truths of the kingdom, your soul is guilty of treason. That's number two. Number one, you are a soul, you have a body. Number two, that soul is guilty of treason. And number three, the punishment for treason is death. And that death means eternal separation from God. And with those truths and with these deceptions, that you're not a good person, that's not gonna work. You can't just earnestly chase some other belief system and think that that's gonna be sufficient and that you're not gonna get by with the idea that, well, if I considered God's love to not, in, in, to not include justice, then that's the God that I've made. Then you've made Build-A-Bear God, right? You walk into Build-A-Bear workshop, workshop, I want this skin, which is horrifying. I want this skin, I want this fluff, I want this little talk box, I want this head, I want this I want this, I want this. You've created, just like Nebuchadnezzar, a little statue and go, my God doesn't send people to hell. My God lets everyone go to heaven if they earnestly seek him some way. That's great. But much like Nebuchadnezzar, that's not the biblical God. That's not the God who created light from nothing. That's not the God who is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar. That's not the God who split the waters of the Red Sea. That's not the God who brought Jesus back from the dead. That's Build-A-Bear God. He will be destroyed too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> These are the truths. Okay, this is what the Bible says. 
I can walk you through chapter and verse for each of these things ad nauseum. I can defend them. I would love to be the kind of pastor who doesn't take the word of God seriously and walk up here and go, you guys good? We're all good? We're all gonna get saved. Let's go party in heaven forever. Don't worry about sin, okay? Sin is an old school concept, concept, puritanism, right? Fire and brimstone. Come on, man, we've progressed past that now. As long as you're chill and groovy and you try to be a good person, we're all gonna make it. High five, everyone's great. That's not what the Bible says. So there are two kinds of doctors. You've got one who uses a stethoscope and you've got a surgeon who cuts the flesh. One listens to the heart, one pulls out a scalpel. They're both meant for your healing. Today, I come as a diagnoser, a diagnostician to tell you, if you don't get rid of your sin problem, if you don't do something about the fact that you've got a bad case and that you stand guilty before a holy and perfect judge, if you don't have a plan to stand in front of him perfectly, that's the only people get into heaven are those who are perfect in everything they've ever said and ever done. And if you've ever committed a sin once, you're not gonna make it. This should automatically beckon our soul to go, then what's the solution? And tomorrow night, I'm gonna tell you the solution because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we broken, miserable sinners possibly stand before a perfect and holy God held up to the perf perfect standard of Jesus and get to go into heaven. It's the beauty of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, for the things that we've thought, said, done, the attitudes we've had, for the things that we've left undone that you've called us to do, we come before you now and we lay them all at your feet. We recognize them. We bring them to the forefront, even the things we don't want to talk about, the addictions that we don't want to bring to the surface because we know that you're a God who's not here to condemn but you're here to offer forgiveness for those who come to you with a contrite heart and a willing spirit. Guys, we look forward to the solution of your gospel tomorrow. We sit tonight in the brokenness of our own sin, our own bad case, and the condemnation that comes with that, knowing that for whatever reason, your love has provided a solution. Tomorrow night, we get to celebrate the joy of that solution. Jenny, we pray, amen.